Friends, this is your Highlands Bunker podcast. We are behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. And we're mere steps from Rockford Tower. Uh, we're just hanging out right now because what we're going to do um, in a few minutes is we're going to cut to uh, something I recorded with Jordan Howell. Also, just to let everyone know, um, I've surveyed the area. You know, I'm listening, I'm learning, and I've decided that, yes, this is a safe space to walk around. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> The Rockford Tower kind of clicked in your mind just I, from yeah. the, the joke you told. I, I made a little joke a few weeks ago um, because some people were asking about very safe neighborhoods in Wilmington, just being very paranoid. And well, let me let me set this up because <laughs> a friend, a friend yeah. of show, yeah. a friend and comrade of ours, um, Drew Palmer, mm-hmm. um, he's our he's our resident uh, cinephile. He's our he's our movie guy. Um, <clears throat> he has a like I guess some kind of fetish. Like that he he wants to be, he wants to be like see the worst thing he can see, and so he goes on the Wilmington Reddit subreddit. There's a Wilmington subreddit. I've never been on Reddit, but I know he goes specifically to see because the 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 group there is absolutely replete with Mayor Mike sycophants and BPG people. Like people are like, oh, I hope they 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 have another food hall on Maryland Avenue or some shit. You know, let's drop. You know, let's knock down some houses or some shit. So, he is forever finding really, really, really rancid posts on Wilmington Reddit and sharing them with us for some reason. And there was one of them uh, about two months ago that was a map. Get this, folks, if you're familiar with the area. It was a map of Midtown Brandywine. Down by the Brandywine, um, I have uh, friends there. Actually, uh, show veteran and economist Andrew Cassie uh, lives there with his with his wife. Um, you know, we put people live there all around there, and it was just a map of that area. It just says, for people, is this a safe neighborhood to walk around in the daytime? Um, like, what do I need to know? And that was the question. Like, can you can you walk? I mean. Thank God, because that's then where the new food hall is, the new oh, yeah. the, the Chancery food hall yeah. is, is in that in that neighborhood. So, yeah. whew, can you? Well, they probably have the BPG black shirts are probably patrolling just for people like that who are like looking over their shoulder all the time. But so anyway, we obviously made uh, made fun of it. Um, people. People were really mad that we made fun of it because we made fun of it on Twitter, I think. And people were like, they're just asking. It's like, you're, you're stupid. You're just dumb. And they just people got really mad. And then about three weeks later, Kirsten takes a screenshot of the Highlands and Rockford Park. And like in, this, in her most like sincere posting style says, I have to go over here at lunchtime. Does anybody know if it's safe? And people just lost their minds. Yeah. And uh, just it's interesting because the like the range of misinterpretations that I saw was really incredible. Yes. People who were like, oh, I I think it is. She's clearly a 
a national Biden staffer who's asking because she's coming to Wilmington to work on the Biden campaign. Yeah, they put this whole story together. Yeah, Yeah, they have a whole backstory about why this person sincerely wanted to know whether the place we live is a war zone. Yeah, yeah. And then people who were like, oh, that's like, that's not cool for you to be asking. Like, um, that seems like insensitive. And then other people who were like, no, that's actually a normal thing to ask. Like the just posting different neighborhoods and being like, is this safe? What is the crime like? Can I walk around? So, yeah, um, I, I'm not making jokes anymore because <laughs> I didn't like the result. Look, they don't get jokes. No, people do not do not get, understand yeah. them. No, they really don't. Um, and, and it it was funny because it, it ran the, the whole gamut, like you said, yeah. like from people who were like kind of saw through it and were mad and, and, and developed this whole backstory about the, the one person who really sincerely needed this information. And then it was other people who were like, you got to look out. You got to look out there. It's it's it's, da- it's dangerous yeah. out there. I'm like, no, it's not. Stop being... and my biggest thing, and I, and I yeah. think I've talked about it before. I don't know if you get this, but occasionally we'll just say people in our ecosystem that don't maybe live around here will sort of do that. Or they'll be like, hey, we're going to meet, you know, on Market Street, say, whatever. Is it is it safe? I'm like, you're not supposed to be asking that. Like, you know what I mean? Or like, you're supposed to know, like, it, you know, there may be places that are that are sketchy. I mean, we've told the story of, of Drew being mugged uh, in Riverside. And when 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 Eugene found out and asked like what happened, where was he? And they told him, you know, he took a shortcut holding like eighteen pizzas, and at at night, Eugene's like, "What the fuck is he doing?" <laughs> because yeah, you have to have some awareness, like mm-hmm. like I call it like urban awareness, mm-hmm. local knowledge, I guess. But that's different than just assuming without knowing anything that you have to ask whether like it's safe there. Like, isn't there other ways to find out than just this, like, uh, this fear of, like, other people? Is it is it other people or is it specifically Wilmington, do you think? Or is it any city, like, for people that are outside, like, an urban area where you might you might actually run into somebody on the street? It's of black people. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just, very, it's, 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 Wilmington yeah. is the 12th blackest city and it has Murder Town USA reputation, but also, like, yeah, they're going to be scared of any city because they are, these are the people who've seen on Fox News all these cities have been burnt to the ground. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. 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 One building burns down, and yeah. like we're it's like, like, we're, I mean, like I do, the, we're in we're in the Bronx in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, and I think that there's there are like other factors at play with people being increasingly isolated and not part of community and not used to like having to interact with folks as much. But I think at its core, it's white supremacy. Like it's just yeah. it's driven by racism ultimately, and just suburban. Madness. See, I, yeah. th- I, my, my first thought was the suburban madness because I was having a conversation, um, actually with my therapist. This was like six months ago, maybe a year, and um, she lives like in North Wilmington, I think, um, and not too far out, but in a in a suburb. And I was just talking about you know the stuff I do. Susan and I share a car, and I, I walk to the market. You know, I know pretty much everybody on the street when we sit outside. You know, our neighbors come out, and we know them all. We know their kids and stuff. And it's cool, and, I, and and she was like, "Yeah, that's a really that's really neat." You know, I don't have that. Mm. I said because you 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 leave your house to go to work, your car might be in a garage or it might be in the driveway. You get in it, you come here, and then you go to office. 
and then you get out of the office. Now, you might have to stop at the store or do an errand, but when you go home, you're going to drive in there, park, and go in your house. Now, in the summertime, you maybe you're mowing the lawn, you see one neighbor, but you're not out in the middle. You know, you're not going to run into somebody on the street. I know when I wake up, I'm going to run into people on the street. And so, you know, I just have some kind of awareness, like, I don't know. There's something very um, sad. I was trying to think of a better word for it. But that people, like, are now, are so suburbanized mm-hmm. that they're like I, if if I if, if if I run into somebody in the street I have to know what's the joke like anybody I run into I have to be ready to shoot them like like I have to be re- on my guard all the time like it's it's an awful it's a it's a mind virus yeah well, that's fun- what the mind virus is you know what I mean yeah. and it's funny doing so much canvassing because the I did a lot of canvassing in the suburbs especially in 2018 but then you know further out and like the only time people are out is if they're walking the dog. That's mm-hmm. the only time you actually see people. And half these suburbs don't have sidewalks. Anyway, so it's basically encouraging you not to go outside. And it's very... Because I, I grew up in the suburbs, like, until, like, middle school. And it is, like, a weird culture shock just to be, like, there's people just hanging out mm-hmm. outside. Like, it is... It's a, it's a subtle thing, but, like, in the suburbs, like, you're not just having people hanging out in the corner, hanging out. Yeah. If they're out, they're out for a very, very specific reason. Um, and so when you get into the city and there's people just like on the stoop or on their porch or on the corner or whatever it is that just like for, if you're in the suburbs, your only experience with that is like watching the wire or something where it's like, Oh, corner boys. Okay. I know what this is. It's like, no, it's just guys. <laughs> like they're just chilling. Yeah. It's just like, you know, my neighbor and I, we both have a bench in the front of the house. Our, our, our neighbor on this side, Dr. Karen, she's got like a screen in porch. She chills out on. Yeah. I mean, we see people, you know? And I don't have to, like, yeah, I'm not saying there aren't dangerous places to go, but the uh, the instinct to be afraid, yeah, I think, and, and for the reasons that we're talking about, you know, some mix of, like, racism, crime, fear-mongering, just, like, the suburban lifestyle. And not um, feeling, n- not feeling, like, your outcome is tied to the larger community's outcome. You know, seeing yourself as, like, an island rather than how, no, it's important for me to, like, lean into the broader community because I'm part of it and whatever happens to me is, like, inherently tied to these other people, you know? Yeah. I I think that's right. I mean, it seems sort of maybe, yeah, I mean, it's intuitive, really, right? Like, if you're going to run into people, you have, like, a stake in what's going on. But if you're just going from place to place in a car. Yeah. You don't, you don't really, you have a stake in each finite point mm-hmm. being good for you. Like, that's why I like people yell at like shopkeepers and like cashiers and shit because it's supposed to like, that's their one interaction that has to go the way they want it to or they're going to fucking lose their mind. Yeah. But, you know, if, if your day isn't really structured like that, you have to take a different sort of slant. I think uh, to, to me, it's a healthier slant. Yeah, I think sure. even just living in density or just being around people like I don't I, I don't know you just and you don't even have to like so Susan and I get into this argument about like when you're walking whether you say hi to everybody on the street or you don't I'm like you don't say hi to you just get, maybe nod like some people you give them that you do that you know you, hey like that but you don't have to like engage everybody but she's like ah, you gotta talk to everybody now she's got me talking to everybody yeah so it's nice yeah it is kind of 
It is. It is kind of, and I don't know. Someone told <laughs> Look, me today. Look, it's safe. He was, it's safe. He I'm glad. Pray I'm for gl- me. Hopes I have a blessed day. And I thought, oh wow, that's so beautiful. I, I <laughs> I'll you, tell sir. you a story. That happened to me today. <laughs> I had to, I had to get up early to get uh, the pups uh, barbiturates so she yeah. doesn't have a seizure and die. And so I'm walking down uh, to the uh, Walgreens, and you know. When I'm walking somewhere, I'm I'm in transit, like I'm going someplace, mm-hmm. like I'm not just hanging out. So I'm, I had, and, and plus I'm in traffic, and I don't want I'm trying to get out of the way. So I'm jumping down through the through the parking lot there, and I hear this guy yell over to me. He's like, "Man, you're fast. I wish I could walk that fast." <laughs> and I'm like, "Brother," I was like, "I'm always going somewhere." He's like, "My knees," and he's got like a cane, and he's like getting out of the car. He's like, "My knees don't do it." Yeah. You know, so I walk back and I, I I get in line at the pharmacy. The two pharmacists are working, but there's no tech there. It's sort of early, and so I'm just waiting for it sort of to come out. It's only been like a minute or two, and as the as the, as the person comes out to to come to the till to like call me over, the guy's walking up, and mm-hmm. I was like, "See, it didn't even matter. Mm-hmm. We're all at the same place anyway." Yeah, and it was like he laughed, and then I realized like he's talking to the pharmacist, and then like the woman working there, um, the retail uh, clerk knows him, and I'm like, oh, this guy must come in every day and just like you yeah. know shoot the shit with everybody. But it was neat. I did that happened at like uh, nine thirty this morning. Yeah, he was like, "Look at you, man!" I was like, "Buddy, people tell me I'm a fast walker. <laughs> I'm a fast walker. It's true." Yeah, you got places to be. So, folks, here's what we're doing. We are going to introduce a conversation that I had yesterday, actually, with Jordan Howell, Delaware Calls on Jordan Howell. I think I've alluded to it. Um, we've been working on different sort of research projects, and we were able to partner with the Delaware uh, Journalism Collaborative to write and research a story about Wilmington's east side, Black Wilmington, the Big Quarterly. Um, and what they did to the east side. We talked a little bit about this with Stephen Leach, um, who wrote Boise's Horn about jazz in Wilmington, and we've talked about it. You know, well, you know, we've 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 alluded to it. Um, but this is a three-part series, uh, and we're going to give you a lot of information because it's dropping in the call and in the news journal. Actually, it, it's already dropped in the call by the time you hear this. Um, so we'll give you all the info, and then afterwards. We're going we're gonna to record a fun one for all the new patrons who signed up for the last patrons-only episode. So now all patrons, new ones, old ones, fake ones, <laughs> people trying to hide, people who, <laughs> we know what you're doing. We see you. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll do some fun uh, for all the patrons this week, too. So, um, yeah, listen to, um, to Jordan and I talk about this huge story that we're dropping. Um, And we'll talk to you soon. Left is best. Comrades and friends, hello. We're back. We're here. We're still here. We haven't gone anywhere. But through the magic of um, recording, uh, I'm now here with our friend and comrade, uh, Jordan Howell. Jordan, hello. Yo, yo, yo. Yo. So, I don't know how you want to kick this off. Um... I know it's something you've been researching, sort of a, a a lot of Wilmington history, and you've had some stuff that you've wanted to like kind of run down um, that has to do with the Big Quarterly and you know the history of Black Wilmington on the East Side. 
And we were trying to figure out a way to tell some of these history stories. You know, we talked about doing podcasts. We talked about sort of different research, different research we were doing. And the Delaware Journalism Collaborative, um, who people, regular listeners will know, uh, when we talked to Allison Levine, uh, that the call is involved in that. Well, we were... Uh, we worked in partnership with them um, because uh, just out of the blue, they sort of called and asked the call and us like if if any of our research, historical research, was around like housing and land use. And we said, um, "That's funny. You should say that. <laughs> Actually, it is." So, do you want to talk about like sort of the basics of the research, like what you were looking at originally and how this sort of came about? Yeah, no idea, like what level of nerdery that uh, you know they were dealing with at the time, and um, you know, it really is kind of a lesson to anyone who's ever, uh, you know, in the course of researching, uh, you know, a subject, or to anyone who's been in the course of researching a subject. And has never found, or it's been difficult to find someone to publish that work. This has been a real lesson for me as a writer about the value of sticking with it. Because, uh, you know, Rob, I think that I told you a little while ago that once we got the go-ahead from the Delaware Journalism Collaborative to, um, to write this story, that I went back and looked at my notes on my computer because I had started researching this many, many years ago and found that the first file I had was from 2018 when I was researching and ended up publishing um, on the call, Delaware call. One of the first articles we published was uh, before the riots. It was the article I wrote and it uh, initially for the Delaware Art Museum about uh, the long, hot summer of 1967 here in Delaware. And in the course of researching this, uh, just learned more and more about the role that uh, you know, city planning and city government played and kind of like shaping, you know, the city physically as we know it today and as we live in it and came across this story that I think is, you know, I don't feel is very well known. Did you know about this before well, this is we the funny, talked about the, this? The funny part of it is I didn't. And that's like, the, I mean, it, it, it makes sense because I was born in 1974 um, in Wilmington General Hospital Right over, you know, near Judy Johnson Park. People know where that is. That's where the hospital was. And so I'm Wilmington guy. Um, but I never heard of the quarterly until I was like well into adulthood. And again, it makes sense because, you know, your, your story starts out about like people do know um, the, the story of 95 and what that did to, you know, a large swath of the city. Um, just because they're on 95 and you can't help but notice you're driving through a, a trench that was cut through the middle of the city. like you know. What was there before the trench? Yeah. Just, I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously <laughs> that wasn't always there before. So sort of like in the back of your mind, even if you don't know the story, you can kind of like, it's, you can see it. By the time I came of age in the 80s where I sort of like knew where I, where I was, you know, we would go down what we would say like downtown sometimes from just like five minutes away, you know, we just lived up Maryland Avenue. Um, but we would come into like our sporting goods. My dad always picked up his, uh, his tickets at bag and baggage on nice street. It used to be like a luggage place, but it was like a ticket agent. Um, 
stuff like that. Like we went to St. Anthony's. Like you know, we we were still sort of connected to the city. Um, but after the riots, man, it was just like a weird thing. Like completely segregated, east side, west side. Um, you know, really obvious that like shit went down, uh, and it was bad. But nobody really, you know, talked about it. Like you know, I I guess we're we were we were sort of part of the white flight. I guess. Um, I mean, we still have people in our family in the city, and we only moved again like five minutes down Maryland Avenue. So it's not like if, we, if our flight didn't get that far. Um, you know, my my grandfather still lived like a couple minutes walk in the same neighborhood in Richardson Park, and he was able when he worked at the Wilmington Shops at du- Dupont Wilmington Shops at the end of Maryland Avenue, he was able to walk. You know, it took him you know twenty thirty minutes or whatever. So it wasn't like we flight, but but there was. There was there was definitely a feeling, and I did not know the story until way later in life, and I didn't even really know the impact until about maybe a year or two ago when I interviewed well, Stephen Leach. Stephen Leach, when I when I interviewed him, uh, got like really sort of deep into it. Great book, yeah, um, and we, it's it's cited in the piece too. But yeah, this is a lost. I mean, I don't want to call it a lost piece of Wilmington history because it's not lost; it's right there. Um, but it was an ignored, and that's sort of how the story develops, is like, there's this big thing that we had, um, world, you know, there's, it's, it's unique and, and completely, um, you know, seminal sort of festival in the United States, and we don't know that much about it. No, that's a, that's a thing though, because it's like, like, and to some extent, like, things have been lost, because right, right now, like, French Street, um, uh, here's one of the things that let me just backtrack a little bit here. Um, yeah, well, let's let's just start about like yeah, let's start French Street. Let's and start what, about French Street. Yeah, let's talk about what that was from like way back Peter Spencer time. Because French Street now stops at Second and then doesn't continue and doesn't like pick up again until Eighth Street um, or Ninth or is it Ninth? I forget. I'm forgetting right now. Either Eighth or Ninth. And because it's basically it's like uh, that big hotel that's there. Yeah, because the DoubleTree, the MetLife Building, the City County or the County Building, and the Chase Center all basically uh, like interrupt or are built over top where French Street used to be, and the the, the entire premise of the story is that it, that used to be the center of Black Wilmington, and. When you had mentioned just a few minutes ago how uh, when you're driving, everyone in Wilmington knows about how I-95 divided the city. And when you're driving over or like you're when you're in Wilmington or driving over I-95, like that is something you can like you can see like there are no longer houses there. You're trying to drive. You're driving through the city and you can see that like some there's been some type of disruption there. But when you look at the east side of Wilmington and where French Street used to be, like if you hadn't, you know, if you hadn't lived here for you know, 50 years, then, you know, how would you know there haven't always been government buildings there? It just kind of looks like a city block could look like or should look like, but you, you know, without no, like, but, well, you know, when you, and what I have, like, looked into the history of French Street, that used to be the center of Black Wilmington, where all churches, restaurants, jazz clubs, um, national theater was down there, Auto shops, um, you know, barbers, diners, all sorts of businesses. Very uh, seminal, or, or I should say, jazz clubs in which seminal music was played. Was played, yes. 
Um, and one of the one of the gentlemen that I interviewed for the project, um, Kamal Ngam, uh, called it Wilmington's Black Wall Street. Um, the idea, like um, referencing, uh, you know, the Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that that was the equivalent of it here in Wilmington was along French Street. And, you know, that block, like that stretch of French Street just doesn't exist anymore uh, because it has, you know, all of that was um, part of an urban renewal project in the mid to late 1960s, you know, ultimately demolished for a civic center, you know, that was never built. And eventually, when they realized they couldn't build a civic center, they decided to try and build a mall, and they couldn't build that either. And what eventually happened is now we just have, you know, all the kind of government buildings that are there, a kind of hodgepodge of, you know, other private uh, interests. Like, you know, we have the, uh, there's the the Doubletree Hotel, you know, the MetLife building. Uh, You know, that used to be a bustling, um, you know, densely populated downtown area where there were shops, you know, uh, you know, shops along the street and apartments, you know, you know, throughout that area of town. And it was all in the late 1960s and early 1970s um, demolished, which is it's one of the things about this is shocking to learn about how it played out in Wilmington. But of course, it played out in cities all across the the u.s um yeah i forget if it was the if if it was that gentleman or someone else because we went uh one just talk about the research a little bit we went uh one afternoon to a meeting at the delaware historical society uh we were invited uh by ivan henderson the uh, executive director there uh to uh, to to meet some neighborhood elders really and I think it was the same gentleman who's when he made the the Black Wall Street comment was like, yeah, and it wasn't just there. It was like the rest of the East Side and Dunalith, you know, the, the historically uh, black communities, uh, you know, South Bridge, South Bridge, Riverside, Riverside, yeah. uh, what, what we now call West Center City. Um, uh, all of that, the 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 what they in, what, what they would call in England the High Street, you know, the the lawyers, the shops, the, the hub, the hub was French Street. And it was completely plowed over for some very, like, anodyne public buildings, basically, uh, in the end. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about the, the quarterly itself because – and you, you describe it so well because now that I've looked into it over the past maybe five or ten years that I've even known what it is, you know, we had a, a sort of a Mardi Gras here. You know that was, but it was connected to sort of church, and so it played itself out in a very different way. Um, but it, you know, it goes all the way back to you know the antebellum period, and it, it and and people really, it's such a deep history that I think people really need to to understand it. Do you want to talk a little bit about just the quarterly, what it was like, how people, um, how it developed, and how it was really like. You you describe it so well because like literally the population of the city in the 19th century would 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 go up that last Sunday of the quarterly. Yeah, and and I'll just preface, preface this by saying that you know I am not a uh, you know historian of uh, you know uh, African American history. You know I very much consider myself a historian of like local you know Wilmington history. And so there's much about you know much about the August quarterly that I probably that I cannot speak to. But um, you know but what I do know is 
that, um, yeah, when Wilmington's, uh, in the years, uh, decades following the Civil War, when Wilmington's population was, uh, you know, 50, you know, thousand or so people, um, once a year, you know, between, you know, six and 10,000 people, uh, you know, would arrive in the city from all around the region for the August quarterly uh, celebration, um, primarily arriving by train from Philadelphia, Baltimore, uh, Dover, Harrington, Southern Delaware. Um, you know, this is when, you know, in the late 19th century, there was a, you know, very vibrant kind of national or not, you know, regional rail network, you know, here and just thousands and thousands of people would all arrive at the old train station on French Street, which does not exist anymore. Now they're the uh, current train station and viaduct were built in the early 20th century, but back then it would have run at street level right al- right along Water Street, and the trains would have parked, you know, just, you know, one, like, literally across the street from French Street, like, on the other side of French Street from where the current train station technically building is, you know, on the other side of French Street is where the parking garage is, and right there is where the, you know, train station would have been. And all the newspaper reports for, you know, decades and decades. It's just trains would roll in for the August quarterly, you know, completely packed with hundreds and hundreds of people. And, you know, they would all, you know, disembark the train. The train would take off. And then another train would follow, you know, perhaps minutes later. And hundreds of more people would disembark. And from then, you could walk up French Street from the train station all the way to the Brandywine River. So from the Christina River to the Brandywine River. You could walk up French Street and the entire stretch of French Street was, you know, restaurants, churches, um, you know, other community organizations and establishments, residences, you know, some empty lots, uh, you know, where they would also set up, uh, you know, restaurants and, uh, you know, basically uh, food stands and mobile food stands. Um, It's just, you know, there were there were. uh, musicians in, in the streets. Yeah, we, got, we have some cool photos. Amazing of, of, photos. Of sort of like these, like, um, just buskers and uh, preachers in the street with, you know, one one man and a tambourine, one man and a steel guitar. Uh, there's Yeah, I think there's a picture of a guy with a steel guitar and a kazoo, yeah. like, just playing for a group of maybe, like, ten people in the street. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing story. Um, the, the one thing that always struck me, uh, that I always, uh, I I couldn't put together until I knew this is that there's a, there's like two blocks of French street. If you go down what they used to call brace bridge, the original like MBNA buildings that they built literally in like the, the early nineties. Yeah. Um, they look, you know, like they've been there, but they haven't. Um, if you go down there on maybe ninth or 10th and you go down French and you get out of where the where the the bank buildings are there are like a block or two of of just of like gorgeous row homes like city row homes still still a real nice couple blocks the city and it's just like oh wow that was the that was the end that was sort of like the end of the that got right out to to the to the brandywine sort of right there where like the pumping station is or where the urban bike project would be and yeah, that was it. That was like the that was the end of a sort of eight, I guess ten, twelve block stretch of yeah, one of the most historic um, you know pieces of black culture in the whole state, maybe the region. I mean, just one of the most historic uh, yeah stretches of street 
Um, you know, it's, I mean, they they tore down Mother African Church in nineteen you know nineteen sixty nine, which was you know the uh, you know which Peter Spencer uh, founded in uh, eighteen thirteen and held the big big uh, first big quarterly there in uh, eighteen fourteen. Um, you know, when you look at Market Street and like the area around there, or in any other downtown area, let's not even think about you know Wilmington. Let's think about Philadelphia, for example. When you think about a densely populated kind of mixed use downtown where you have, you know, street level kind of like, you know, restaurants and some homes and apartments on top, you know, that was King Street. That was French Street. That was Walnut Street. And now it's, you know, what, maybe 11 buildings, <laughs> you know, these kind of block size massive structures with a few, with just a handful of Buildings preserved. I, I think St. Joseph's Church is preserved there, and there's like the old customs house and post office is preserved. The there know, was there was at, at the end. I think on twelfth, but I not say twelfth in French. When I still worked at MBNA at that at that uh, you know those group of buildings there, Bracebridge they called it. There was still a, a radio station there, like an old like an like a old house. It was the only one on that block, yeah. and it just got it got torn down maybe fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. But it was just like there was still little things left. You know, that didn't get it and then either finally got it or just sort of stick out like a, you know, like the, like the church that is there that's like sort of shoved in between a bunch of MBNA or Bank yeah. of America buildings. You know? Yeah. Which, so, oh, no, go ahead. I, I, I was just saying, which kind of also, to like, yeah, technically you're preserving the structures, but to some extent runs contrary to just like, you know, basic ideas of historical uh you know, preservation where like, you know, instead of preserving the neighborhood, they would just preserve like very specific buildings and like the things they did preserved. I mean, it was just wrapped up in special interest too. Well, it, that's the thing. That's what I was going to get to. So, so comrades and friends, uh, ladies and gents, uh, this probably will not come as a huge surprise to regular listeners of the Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, but under the auspices of, of crime and, and danger, uh, and is it safe to go there? Where do we park? Under Where all of these, under all of these, under all of these auspices, which which you you will, you know, uh, grand stories in the, in in the news journal about police being being menaced by the by the the, the hordes that you you still see today, um, under the auspices of all this, um, a a. a, a and a nascent sort of idea was birthed. Um, you know, did it come from the John Birch Society? Maybe. Um, was it ultra-conservative? Sure. It's what we call the public-private partnership. <laughs> and, and the public-private partnership, as just, this will not come as a surprise, again, to people um, who uh, are breathing here in Wilmington the last 20 years, was called the Greater Wilmington Development Corporation. Council. Council. The C. I forgot to see. The Greater Wilmington Development Council. And it was a beautiful uh, public-private partnership between the city of Wilmington and... And it was started by executives at the DuPont Corporation. Of course. Of course. You know. <laughs> and so and so the, the uh, you know, so they, uh, you know, spoiler and Not just executives, alert, but executives with the last name. DuPont. DuPont. Yes. <laughs> so as, those those type of executives. You know how you know how as, as Carl said, you know how their DuPont has hired the uh, the felon from Puerto Rico. Well, the DuPonts back then they were doing some strange shit too. Um. So. So yeah. Um. Spoiler alert. Um. They raised the the neighborhood. 
Um, they bulldoze, I guess, was it 12 square blocks? It was, it was initially 10 from 4th Street to 9th Street and on either side of French Street. So basically between King and Walnut. So French Street running down the middle, five blocks <clears throat> on either side. Uh, demolished and all this started like in the uh you know well sur- um, perhaps unsurprisingly when a relative of the Dupont's was mayor of wilmington in uh, <laughs> what know, in 1959 mayor of wilmington i mean why wasn't the why wasn't the paper holding them accountable who owned the newspaper for god's sakes also the duponts okay uh, oh, boy, i see what's yeah. happening here this and is so, what we call. I see. I pitched a title for this whole series. It was called Proto BPG, Proto Przicki. We were going to call it, and it got. I got to tell you, in the editorial meeting, people. Ah, I mean, they groaned. They but, groaned. In any case, but there was much groaning and there was <laughs> much groaning and gnashing of teeth about my consistent fucking just drubbing of of Mayor Mike. But in any event, yeah. So, <clears throat> so Dupont and 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 Wilmington are now in this in cahoots uh, to. You know, develop to do to do real estate development. The important thing to you know keep in mind here too about all this is that you know Wilmington didn't have like a city planner, you know, or a planning department until you know the early 1960s, and so this the the entire idea of what, what they called it back then was urban renewal, which is like even in uh, you know conservative um, urban planning circles nowadays considered a pejorative term because. Like the very little renewal actually happened, we know now like in, that urban renewal was actually just you know mass displacement of people. But in the in Wilmington back in the late 1950s and throughout the 1960s and 70s, uh, you know they had many urban renewal projects that were partly, um, uh, not partly but mostly rather, uh, uh, like propagated by. Um, you know, national housing acts that were first passed by the uh, Truman administration and then the Eisenhower administration that basically gave um, financial incentives uh, to uh, cities and you know to, and other municipalities to you know embark on these types of projects where you know you would basically just entirely demolish uh, you know neighborhoods or blocks of you know substandard or what was called blighted housing and replace it with um, basically anything else. And it didn't even have to be housing. And it could also, uh, you know, at the time could transfer, you know, what might have been some sort of public housing and, you know, that existed in the past to private hands. And so there are all types of, uh, you know, issues with this. I I think you described it uh, perfectly. There's this, the the thing that we recognize today uh, and can at least call it out, sort of like this systemic transfer of public good into private hands in the, for the idea of rejuvenating, um, you know the the, the city. Uh, it, it, this is this is sort of when it started. Um, I mean, again, it it, it it happened in conjunction with other things. It happened in different ways in different places, even in the city, but also you know across the country. Um, but that's really when you have a when you have this kind of analysis, you know, you you this is the lesson that needs to be. To be learned, you know, and uh, I, I think that was and that was the end, right? We'll get to that in a minute. But like, you know, what does this mean today? What are we doing? But like, yeah, finish finish your thought about, uh, um, you know, DuPont. about the, the development in Dupont. Yeah, yeah, because the uh, the Greater Wilmington Development Council was basically started in like the like very like technically 1959, but really early in 1960 because you know Dupont as the one of the leading chemical 
uh, companies in the world, if not the leading chemical company in the world, uh, you know, wanted Wilmington to just be, you know, a fancier, you know, place for its headquarters. And so they started the Greater Wilmington Development Council, which was a nonprofit organization. And Wilmington, Delaware didn't have a planning department at the time um, or a city planner. And so what this organization basically did was filled that gap. You know, they would, you know, hire planners and consultants and other individuals who would or other uh, you know, organizations who would. Uh, they would give them directives, more or less, for here's what we think. We want a civic center in Wilmington. What can this look like? And then, you know, they would come back. Uh, their, their consultants or planners would come back with plans, and then they would give the, these plans to the Wilmington city government, and they would basically be rubber stamped. Um, the, and this so you're entire... saying a group of private individuals that actually has <laughs> control over markets would pass plans and, and, and legislation over to the public democratic entities to rubber stamp correct yes hmm. yeah i feel like i've heard this before yeah this is this is this is fairly common and well, under the guise of being a nonprofit organization they um even though it was run run by dupont um hd hb dupont was at the same time he was vice president of the dupont corporation he was also president and ceo of the greater wilmington development council so it's pretty much impossible to um you know separate these two entities from one one another and after he after he died his brother um Irenae then took over and ran uh the greater wilmington development council for many years after that and wilmington as we know it uh was born in those meetings of the greater wilmington development council like physically um uh, the east side all of those so basically from second street the chase center all the way up you know to uh downtown all of that was you know planned and organized, uh, which was originally supposed to be a civic center by the Greater Wilmington Development Council. Um, when the civic center project basically flopped, they decide uh, they hired consultants who thought who said you know what would really turn around downtown Wilmington is if you had a shopping mall here. Even though they were already building the Christiana Mall um, south of Wilmington, um, and they had no vendors and no no um, uh, companies that had signed on to be part of the Wilmington Mall. They decided, you know what, let's now start pursuing this mall project. And, you know, it was, it, you know, it was really just like the most fanciful thinking. And what you must, you know, what must have been, you know, just people who were not used to hearing no or no one ever wanted to tell these people no. Because one of the greatest reporters the News Journal ever had, uh, Norm Lockman, you know, was openly hostile and critical of this project to the point to where he said in a column at one time, these people are going into a room for an hour because they have to, and they are doing nothing. They're going in there because this is a meeting that the like Greater Wilmington Development Council and the city planning office has to have, and they're doing nothing. Everybody knows that the, that the east side has been demolished uh, for a civic center that is never going to be built or a, a um, shopping mall that is never going to be built. You know, it is all a charade. Everybody knows that this is not going to happen, but they're still, you know, they're still going through the numbers because it was still being supported by DuPont at the time. And until eventually the all the entire project just completely fell apart in the early 1970s. Um, you know, and Norm Lockman was, you know, was giddy. You can see in his columns that you know he wrote for the news journal. He's just like, you know what we need to do? We need to, we need to make this a public holiday. 
I forget the exact day it was, but he's like a public holiday when you know. I we find can it. I find. Agree. Do you find it interesting? Just as a little aside, as like a, a media critique, you find it interesting that somebody uh, with that stature at a, at a major newspaper or legacy media in this city was that critical of this, because I don't see any mainstream. Um, sources being critical of any of this i mean you know at the time well he was the one to break you know that was you know he was the first person on the news journal at least in my research to basically be an open and by that point he was also um, an editor at the news journal to be openly critical of the project and by the time everything had fallen through in the early 1970s you start seeing other columnists and reporters being much more critical of the project you know but it really did you know it really was him and it really did take You know, an African-American reporter in Wilmington calling out the hypocrisy of the project for as much as they call this urban renewal. We know this is an urban renewal. You know, and he said that, uh, um, oh, the, and the, he pointed out one point in the column that the, the direction after the entire project finally crumbled, the direction they ended up taking was something that Jim Baker and some, you know, some of the other black council people on the Wilmington City Council had suggested you know, months or years earlier. And he said at the time they were called, you know, a bunch of black nationalist radicals. And now after the entire project has fallen through, they're basically following, you know, the, the path, the, the, the suggestions that, you know, had been, you know, said that Baker had suggested earlier. Would it, would, and, it, would it surprise <laughs> you to know, would it surprise you to, to learn? And I know you're not learning this. This is a, uh, Rhetorical question? Rhetorical device, yes. I was just going to say that. Would it surprise you to know that just recently, within the last 18 months, say, maybe two years, there was a certain uh, city council member um, who was running for uh, statewide office. Well, state office. And um, people who were canvassing uh, for this council member were told that they heard, you know, on the media that this person was a racist against white people. And it just sounds exactly like what they were saying about people. They were like, you know, if you, if you oppose this, these plans, you're like, uh, you're radical. If you oppose our demolition of the center of black Wilmington, then you must be, you must be Malcolm X. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just so funny. And and again, I, I keep harping on this just because it's, it's, it is very, um, you know, rhymes. You know, we're we're rhyming here. We're, you know, what I mean. Things are happening here that, you know, people can learn from. And I don't want to miss the fact that there, the third part of this series will be sort of talking about lessons learned and policies that uh, we can, you know, we're never gonna, we're never gonna fix this, but we can ameliorate the displacement and the pain um, via, you know, some sort of, you know, some sort of good policy. And, <clears throat> you know, the, the one thing I want to say before you get to that solution part is that while, while within the business core of Wilmington, um, you know, the, the, the factions of corporatist reaction have won, and they will say, unlike what happened in our story, 
now Przyzicki and BPG can actually build the thing they want to build yeah. in the core. So they can deliver on that. That's the progress that's been made there in the core. They can deliver on putting up a fancy apartment building or making the coin, the bank, the coin, or putting in two food halls or whatever. They can do that. They can't do anything on North Market Street, on the other side of Brandywine. And they're pulling the same sort of moves that they're pulling in this story in, say, South Bridge, right? Hanif has been in here several times to talk about sort of going into a room where you know you're just supposed to be there and, like, sign off on shit. It's the same, same thing. It's just happening further away from the business core. So I, I think people need to sort of recognize that it's also happening in sussex too but anyway let's let's get to what sort of the plan is for the third part and give people an idea of where this is going to go yeah well i mean because you know the sad part of this story is it is part it is a tragedy because what was torn down on the east side around front street is you know never going to be rebuilt and it can never be rebuilt uh you know, one of the uh, you know people who I interviewed for this story, a woman named Judith Roan, uh, you know, talked about how heartbreaking that was because you know that was as she called it. She said it was our little Camelot, and it was just that was where the center of the community was. And when it was torn down, you know, and you know the communities were almost dispersed, you know, around Wilmington, that there was just nothing, uh, you know, there was nothing that could have ever replaced it, and. Uh, you know, and on the one hand, it's just a testament to just how, like, bad uh, urban planning was in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, not just bad. I mean, is like openly racist. Like, and we've all like, uh, you know, we have all. Uh, I don't want to say we've all know, but you've. I think you've read the Power Broker. Uh, you know, the Robert Moses book. Um, like, we know that, of course, that. Uh, the decisions that went into where to place um, interstates in our cities, uh, where urban renewal projects, you know, should be and where they should not be. And, yeah, you know, I was all racially I, I always motivated. actually point people if you really want to see a bad one. I mean, I think people know about Robert Moses. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you should if you haven't looked that up. The, what happened if you look at maps of where they put the interstates in Atlanta? Yeah, that's particular. That's like that, that. That actually was one of the ones that freaked me out. I I, I started looking at. Uh, a bunch of different ones when I learned more about the 95 one here. Huh. And Atlanta is particularly uh, grotesque. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Well, and this, I mean, this, we can't we can't rebuild what has been lost on French Street, but what we can do is start to, uh, not, not start to, because people have already done this, but what we can do is recognize that cities should be built for people. Uh, the reason Wilmington has so many streets in it that are like, you know, four or six or eight lanes wide that just shuttle cars in and out of the city as quickly as possible is because during the 60s and 70s and 80s, the city was rebuilt for commercial, uh, you know, and business interests in order to get those people in and out of the suburbs, in and out of the suburbs into the city as quickly as possible. And, you know, that just does not make for... Uh, you know, that does that destroys communities. Uh, if we want to have cities with strong, vibrant communities, then we need to build cities that are oriented around people and, uh, you know, people oriented development. Um, the uh, like one of the things that you talk about, Mayor Prisicki and BPG, there's so much bragging right now about how, like, you know, oh, they've opened up a, you know, another apartment building with like 50 units here, 200 units there. They talk about how they've added 2000 units to downtown you know, over the past 15 years. And it's just like, man, 
there there used to be like probably 15,000, 20,000 people living downtown back in the day. Like the like our cities have been gutted for commercial interests, and that and it takes it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort to turn that around and really start to rebuild communities and urban communities, you know, in cities in and around the places and neighborhoods where they have been completely destroyed in the name of, uh, you know, urban renewal. Yeah. And also I I tell this story and I would be remiss not to point this out too, so that people sort of make this connection about land use and housing. It's boring, Uh, but it's important. I, we have, uh, Nurse Susan and I have great friends at the beach. Obviously, she's from there and, and, and has introduced me to um, many, many uh, fun, uh, slower, lower Delaware people and, and, and Eastern Shore people. And I'll, I'll, I would give them a shout out, but they don't want a shout out. <laughs> um, friends of ours moved uh, to a house that they bought on a couple of acres property that like wedged back into the woods. And they built a pool there, and they built a, a, their in-law home there. And it was just sort of like wedge, but you had to, you had to go down like a, a crushed stone lane, like a dirt lane, to get back to it through the woods. About a year and a half ago, we show up there, and as we're going down the dirt lane on the right, all these huge, the forest has been cleared. Like the trunks are, st- you know, the, the stumps are still there, but some of the logs are there, and this, this old-growth forest had just been like plowed over and I I knew my buddy would just be like sick with this and so when I saw him I was like man I was heart, I was heartbroken to see that you're getting a neighbor he's like we're not getting a neighbor we're getting 117 neighbors because they're putting some kind of like retirement beach community you know right next to him like in Sussex <laughs> and I feel like everybody in Sussex knows this is happening uh, but we do what we do with everything is we just commodify it. Like there's land we got to commodify. We got to make money off that land. We got to get we got to get we got to get renters in here. We got to get rental units in here. We got to get the retirees moving here. He, here's here's the 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 thing. It's the commodification. These are going to be um, these are going to be second homes. These are going to be homes people buy as stuff as, as to be landlords. These are going to be, you know, second homes for retirees or even people who retire and move, but they retire and move here for, you know, tax purposes. And so, you know, they, they don't really have an interest in the school, say, um, which, again, I, I'm not I'm, I'm not judging individual people. I know people who have, or people's parents who have done this. Like, it's not a judge. It's not an individual thing. It's a systemic thing. But like, that's not solving, you know, any any problem. You know, there was just a, a year ago, maybe. Uh, story and there was another one actually about like where the affordable housing is in Sussex because Sussex has all of these service jobs because it's a resort right and all of these people need to work service jobs construction jobs all of this different stuff but they can't live where they they can't fucking live there where are they going to live they live in fucking Seaford and have to drive 50 minutes now do you think that that my guy who lives we'll just say he lives 10 minutes outside of Fenwick Island just to give people nobody has to look this up (laughs) But, like, you think those 115 units or whatever he said they're building there, which are probably there now. I haven't been down there in a bit. Um, do you think that solved any housing problem? I oh, bet you it did not. I mean, As a matter not. of fact, they'll be underwater. <laughs> yeah. As well, a matter I don't know. Of, how far are they west of Fenway uh, Maybe they won't I mean, be underwater definitely in low. 50 years. They're, they're west. But, they're, they're, they're sufficiently west yeah. of, like... 
of the immediate inundation area. But again, of, like, everything's there. Like, change and like you look rise. at Selbyville. We go, we go yeah. to that Selbyville. Have you ever been to that Selbyville concert venue? Uh, the Freeman's Freeman, Freeman stage, Freeman you, stage. You know, I have not, but um, uh, I have been, I have been wanting to go. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's it's sort of like more or less near there. But again, all that stuff is low lying. None of this. The, the like the state of Delaware is in is in the crosshairs, so it doesn't really matter. But but again, I I, I just I I tell that story just to to again point out that we're dealing with this stuff today. We're dealing with this stuff in Wilmington, in Sussex. In Western Sussex, in Kent, like this is a thing. Hey, in suburban Newcastle County. So this this is a th- th- you know th- this is stuff that we need to sort of understand so that we can um, we can decide what like direction we want to go in. So you know I don't know if you want to close out by uh, giving us any like did, did you get a bombshell in this one? I know you talked to uh, our. Our state director of housing, our secretary of housing, who's now running for uh, U.S. House, Eugene Young. Shout out, Gene. Eugene, you know we're ride or die, Eugene. Don't don't fucking worry about that. You can keep that in, Carl. You know. Thinking of the uh, the meme of like you know uh, someone rolling up in a car. It's like get in, loser. We're going to the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got the Biden glasses. I'm in a fucking. I'm blind. I got like dark sunglasses because I can't see anything. I'm like get in. We're riding. No, I mean, um, I, I don't know how much we want to get into that. We'll, we'll get into that more. Like, I, this is a, the one caveat. Like, this is. I'm happy with my representation in the in the state senate. Yeah, this this the argument that I'm going to be making over the next several months is that you can like Sarah McBride just fine. I like Sarah McBride just fine. I, I think she's I, I she's a she's a friend of mine. Like she's a personal friend of mine. And I have nothing really bad to say other than what we just did for the last 45 minutes in here. You got to make you got to you have to look at things from a from a systemic analysis. You have to look at things from, you know, what what's going to move us forward for the stuff that we want. What makes sense? You have to think about that. And so we'll be talking about that more. I, I don't want to, I don't want to bog this down with some controversial shit. Well, all I'll say is in uh, you know final words about the uh, uh, the project. Is so it'll be the first part is running uh, around the August quarterly, right? Yeah. And so then this, we have... this will be out. So yeah, the excellent point. Uh, yesterday, or at least by the time you're hearing this, what I'm saying, this will be on the Delaware Call website. Part one, which is just about the quarterly and the culture and the neighborhood. Um, it'll already be out and. On Sunday, this year's big quarterly begins. Um, and the other thing we found out uh, this week is that this will probably be across a bunch of different media platforms. So look out on your on your Delaware onlines, or if, if your if your gran or your nan gets the like the physical paper, they might see it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, we had a we had a little meet up with the. Uh, with Mike Feely of the News Journal this week in preparation for publishing this stuff. And uh, 
He gave I, us an envelope of photographs and was just like, please bring these back to us. <laughs> we were like, okay, you got it. Well, and, we, and we will. And we did, rather. We, I yes, guess. Well, yeah, yeah. We, 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 I have to we, speak as though this is in the future. We did. Well, we haven't. We wouldn't have yet. We haven't this will yet, be out Friday. we will in the future. Don't we give anybody yet. any ideas. We're still going to try to steal those photographs. <laughs> um, we're not going to steal the photographs. Uh, but there's other stuff. But but the, the wraparound of this promotion uh, will be uh, some fun stuff. So we'll leave the fun stuff for the fun stuff. But yeah, definitely, um, you're going to see this story. I'm just going to put it to you that way. Um, This is not going to be a niche story. This is going to be extremely important. Part one about, um, you know, Black Wilmington and the Big August Quarterly is going to be already out as you're hearing this. Part two is going to be out next week. Um, the quarterly actually runs, the programs that they run are actually run through the 27th. So this will be out before the, the final day of the quarterly this year. And then part three, which is sort of examining lessons learned and solutions, will be out the week after Labor Day. We're going to let you go. We're going to let you go to the beach. You know, you don't have to follow this or think about it during the, during the holiday. Um, but, yeah, when you come back, um, we're going to wrap it up that, that uh, the late in that week of September. Um, so... I'm fucking excited for it. We've been working on it like crazy, but it's been all... I mean, I guess because we're Wilmington guys, so we're like, we're, we're into it. I mean, when I when I first, uh, you know, started learning about this story again, because I haven't lived here as long as you. Yeah, I've moved here. I moved to Wilmington in 2000 and, uh, you know, 14. And, uh, you know, so I'm only about like just approaching my 10-year anniversary here. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those stories that, I'll, you know, people who haven't lived here, for 30 or 40 years, like, you know, or, you know, even longer, just don't know. And, you know, once you hear the story and like, once you go downtown and you see where all the government buildings are and you see, and you learn about what used to be there before all of that, um, you know, it'll change the way you look at the city forever. Uh, and you'll, we'll learn uh, and understand what used to be there. Uh, you know, the, the community that used to be there, the August quarterly, as it was held, the celebration, you know, that used to be there and how there was a concerted campaign to end all that that was successful and so successful that, you know, here we are in the year 2023, you know, decades and decades later, um, you know, there's you know, very, you know, very few people, I think, that at least that I have met, um, you know, who are who are not elders know what used to be on the east side, what used to be on French Street, know that the August quarterly used to be held there, not, for example, at Tubman Garrett Park or all the other places where it has been held, um, you know, over the years. And, you know, and again, it's like one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, and so that's why I hope everyone sees, uh, you know, and learns, you know, when they, and hopefully read the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's fucking great work. Everybody knows it. That's what we're doing here, folks. Great work. And, um, uh, We'll have it all linked up, and right now, based on our great work, we're going to give you a little, um, going to give you a little closer. I think, I think some friends are going to get together and, and have it out. We're going to clip it into the to the back of this. And so, if you're if you're listening to this because you wanted to hear about the research we did and the stories we've produced, then I'm glad. Thank you. Um, consider a patronage. You know, at uh, Patreon.com/slash/TheHighlandsBunker, um, we do all kinds of different work. And uh, yeah, you'll learn something. I know you're mad. Most people get mad at me, but but like, there's other people here. Like Jordan's telling you that what he did. Like, don't 
I'm just like the I can't explain it right now. But anyway, if if stuff like that like makes you nervous, just stop the stop the the episode here. Are you saying people about to start talking mad shit? We're gonna be look. <laughs> you know? Here's what I'll say: If you can't We've handle been... that smoke, just stop the fucking episode here. <laughs> Rob did not tell us that was how he ended the episode, and we did not actually record anything after. We just had the stuff from before. So, I uh, hope everybody enjoyed the episode and left its best. <laughs> <laughs>